Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for this new, beautiful day here. Thank you for allowing us to live in such an awesome place as St. Augustine. Uh, I pray that you would speak through Smiley this morning, that your Holy Spirit would fall fresh on us today as a congregation, and help us to go out and be your hands and feet. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Thanks, Noah. We did want you to know that Good News Church is a Presbyterian church, and we have elders who help oversee the church. The last couple of weeks, uh, our elders have been hosting, and we'll continue that so that you might get a chance to know who they are. Um, I have a confession um, for you this morning. I really struggle with OCD, not what you think, uh, with, obsessive, with obsessive comparison disorder. With obsessive comparison disorder, you say, what is that? Let me show you in Romans 12. In Romans 12, <clears throat> verse 15, uh, the Bible says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And, and I want you to know I struggle much more rejoicing with those who rejoice than weeping with those who weep. I mean, as a surfer, when I found out a friend broke his board, that was easy to weep. But if a friend sent me pictures from Hawaii of him surfing waves, that was way, way harder to rejoice in. I find it way harder to rejoice with those who rejoice than to weep with those who weep. Uh, do, do you? That's why I love this lady. This lady wrote a whole book. The whole book's on obsessive comparison disorder. Now, the title is really, really good. Notice the title, I'm happy for you, sort of, <laughs> not really. Isn't that kind of you that I'm happy for you, uh, sort of, not really. And then it goes on, and it's hard to read because I didn't do a good job with this, but it says, finding contentment in a culture of comparison. How in the world do you find contentment in a culture of comparison? And that's what we're going to be learning about today. Now look at the two fishbowls. The two fishbowls represent... Uh, the two ways that obsessive comparison disorder can affect us. Did you know there are seven deadly sins, seven deadly sins, and two of them are represented by the bulls? See, one deadly sin is envy, that we envy others. So sometimes with obsessive comparison disorder, we think we're in the smaller fishbowl and that other people have life better. And so then we're filled with envy, right? Envy and coveting and... Did you know, what the tenth, you know what the 10th commandment is, right? It's you shall not covet. So, so sometimes we imagine people have a better life than us and we're filled with envy and coveting. But other times we imagine we're in the big bowl and, and we're looking at those in the smaller bowl and we're filled with pride. And did you know that pride is another one of the uh, seven diddly sins? What does the Bible say about pride? That pride goes before the fall and a haughty spirit before stumbling. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to read a story in the Bible about a family, about a family that's undone, that's undone with obsessive comparison disorder. And we're going to see how destructive it is. And then after we see that, we're going to look at Jesus and we're going to see how only Jesus can free us from OCD, from obsessive comparison disorder. Now, you probably don't struggle, but you probably know someone who does. So maybe you could listen so you could help your friends. Okay, now, if you have your Bible, turn with me to Genesis 37. If you're new, welcome. This year, we've been reading through Genesis together, and we've been getting to know some of the great patriarchs and 
the, the great men of faith. Uh, we looked at Abraham and Isaac, and now we're at Jacob. Last week, Strider spoke, did a great job, said that God gives us, gave Jacob a new identity, Israel, and a new purpose to bless the nations. We skipped over chapter 36. Chapter 36 uh, is all the descendants of Esau. So we're picking back up the story in Genesis 37.1. Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. These are the records of the generations of Jacob. Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah. See that, the records of the generation of Jacob. This is a major shift in direction in the book of Genesis. From 37, the next 14 chapters deal with the descendants, the sons of, of Jacob, and particularly Joseph. Now, notice Joseph is 17, and uh, if you think your family's kind of messy, this family was really messy because there was one father, but the, the 12 sons and daughters came from four different wives. Some of you, this is just a refresher. Some of you, it's new. See, there was Leah, and these are the sons from Leah. They were the oldest ones because they came first. And then the sons of Zilpah, another wife, and then Rachel. Joseph, see, J Joseph was from his favorite wife, Rachel. And then Bilhah, wow, 12 sons, daughters, four wives, very complicated, okay? Back to the story. And you thought your family was unique, right? Now, Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons. Uh, he had a favorite doesn't every family think that one of the kids is the favorite, right? Joseph was Jacob's favorite. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a very colored tunic. He had this really cool coat that marked him, this is dad's favorite. How do you think that went with the brothers? Hmm? Think that, that worked really well? The brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Obsessive comparison disorder. Dad loves Joseph best. Look at the robe he has. Their hearts are filled with envy, coveting, and hatred. Then Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his Brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Please listen to this dream which I have had. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheave rose up and also stood erect. And behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheave. Then his brothers said to him, Are you actually going to reign over us? Or are you going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dream and for his words. Now, interesting, he has a dream, and, uh, and, and we kind of assume that it comes from God because it comes true, but it doesn't explicitly say it comes from God, does it? Matter of fact, uh, a few chapters earlier, remember when Laban was chasing Jacob? When Laban was chasing Jacob in Genesis 31, listen carefully, Genesis 31, 24, God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream. Very explicitly, it says, God came to him in a dream, and God said to him, be careful that you do not speak to Jacob, either good or bad. 
And so it seems like this dream comes from God, but it doesn't actually say it. And then Jacob shares it with his brothers. I had this dream and you guys are all going to bow down before me. Um, even if it came from God, think it was a good idea to share? In a culture with obsessive comparison disorder, how do we know what to share with others and what we maybe shouldn't share? Let me give you a great guide in learning what to share. Look at this verse in Ephesians 4, 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. So you probably shouldn't share something that's unwholesome, right? But now look at the next three things. But only such a word is as good for edification. Before you share something, you should say, would this edify the ones who hear? Secondly, according to the need of the moment, is it needed? Do I need to share this information? And thirdly, will it give grace to those who hear? Will it give grace? Now imagine, imagine if Joseph had thought, will this edify my brothers? Is it necessary for to share? It's true, but does it need to be shared? Will it, will it give grace to those who hear? And it would have failed all three of those tests, right? But listen, obsessive comparison disorder, it affected both Joseph and his brothers. Joseph is filled with pride. Look at me, look at me, look at what you guys are going to do one day. And look at his brothers. They're filled with envy, coveting, jealousy, hatred. Now he had still another dream and related it to his brothers. Learned nothing, right? And said, Lo, I have had still another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. He related it to his father and to his brothers. He just told everybody. And his fathers rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Again, this is going to come true, but listen, by sharing it, by sharing it, did it, did it edify was it needed? Did it give grace? No, no, we see Joseph, and he's caught up with obsessive comparison disorder. He's sharing with them how great he is, and we see the brothers, and man, they're filled with envy and jealousy and hatred, right? Be careful. Obsessive comparison disorder is, is very, very dangerous. Then his brothers went to pasture their, flock, their father's flock in Shechem, if you're new here, a, a few years before, Simeon and Levi had murdered all the men in Shechem, and they're going back where they had murdered the men. Shechem was a place that Jacob owned some property. They had large flocks. They were going back there to pasture their flock. Then his brother went to pasture their flocks in Shechem. Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send you to them. And he said, I will go. Then he said to him, go now and see about the welfare of your brothers. Now, I love the Hebrew word for welfare there is shalom. Don't you love the word shalom? Go and check the shalom of your brothers and the shalom, the welfare of their flock and bring word back to me. I think I forgot to share earlier that one reason the brothers didn't like Jacob is he was a tattletale. Is there a better mission? Is there a better mission for a tattletale than for your dad to say what? Go, check on your brothers, and then come back and what? Tell me what they're doing. So he, he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to 
Shechem. Um, a man found him, in ba- so he travels to Shechem. He was wandering in the field. Come on, ladies. What, what, is, what, is jo- what is Joseph's condition? He's what? Thank you. He's lost, right? And what's he doing? Is he asking for directions? Is he? What's he doing? He's what? Wandering around, right? A man found him and bold. He was wandering in the field, wouldn't ask for directions. And the man asked him, what are you looking for? He said, I am looking for my brothers. Please tell me where they are pasturing the flock. It would have been a huge flock. Someone would have noticed. Then the man said, they have moved from here, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Let me show you this. See the map here? The story started in Hebron. That's where Jacob was. And and then the brothers went to Shechem. See where Shechem is? That's about 50 miles. So Joseph goes from Hebron to Shechem to check on his brothers. He gets there. They say he's, he's not here. He's in Dothan. So they go another 20 miles, right, to get to Dothan. So this is where this is taking place in, in Dothan. The next part, we're going to learn a lot about sin. We're going to learn a lot about sin in the next few verses. When they saw him from a distance, and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. When we're tempted to sin, let's remember every sin leads to a bigger sin. Every sin leads to a bigger sin. It's kind of hard to murder your brother, isn't it? But, but many years before this, they had, Simeon and Levi had murdered all the men in Shechem. And having murdered before, now when people make them angry, it's their pattern to repeat that, right? And so they were plotting together how to murder their own brother. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Now then come and let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits, and we will say a wild beast devoured him. Then let us see what will become of this dreamer. I want you to see how sin progresses. The first thing the brothers did was they dehumanized their brother. They said, here comes this, what? Dream. They didn't say, here comes our brother. Because it's hard to kill your brother, but if you dehumanize someone first, then it's much easier to mistreat him. So they labeled him, right? They labeled him, here comes this dreamer. So they dehumanized their brother, and and then they plotted to murder him. Isn't that what we see happening all the time around us, isn't it? Take with racism. The first thing someone does is they dehumanize someone, don't they? they? They use a racial slur to dehumanize someone. And once they've made them less than human, then they can what? They can mistreat them. Don't we see that happening politically all the time? That people dehumanize people? They don't say those human beings made in God's image who I disagree with. They say what? Those conservatives, those liberals, first we what? Dehumanize them and then we speak evil or do evil, right? Be careful with dehumanizing people because the first step in mistreating them is to Uh, dehumanize them and say they're less than human. That's just what they did. They labeled him this dreamer. But Reuben, he's the firstborn son, heard this and rescued him out of their hands. Exactly what the firstborn son should have done. Let us not take his life. Reuben further said to them, shed no blood, throw him into the pit that is in the wilderness, but do not lay hands on him that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. 
listen, don't kill him, just throw him in the pit. And uh, Reuben was hoping he could come back and free his brother. So it came about when Joseph reached his brothers, they had seen him from his distance, they, they stripped him of his tunic, the very colored tunic that was on him. Oh, they hated him. And what represented that he was their father's favorite was that tunic, so they took it off him. And they took him and they threw him into the pit. Now the pit was empty without any water in it. What do you think Joseph was doing when his brothers were mistreating him? What do you think he was doing? Hmm? Please, please don't do this. Don't do this. I'm your brother. Don't, don't do this to me. I, I, I'm your brother. I'm your brother. Don't you think he was pleading for his life? So they threw him into a pit. While he's pleading for mercy, what do you think the brothers are doing? Hmm? Now they sat down to eat a meal. Their brother is pleading for mercy and they're eating a meal. I want you to understand something very carefully. The potential for any sin that anyone has ever done lies inside of all of us. The potential for any sin that anyone has ever done lies inside of all of us. That's why we need to be really, really careful of obsessive comparison disorder. We see this and so worked in their brother's life, this envy and coveting that they wanted to murder their brother. And this is God's family. This is a family of believers. Then they sat down to eat a meal, and as they raised their eyes and looked, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead with their camels bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh on their way to bring them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it for us to kill our brothers and cover up his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay hands, our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh, and his brother listened to him. So Judah spoke up for his brother and says, listen, let's not kill him. If we have to do something, let's, let's sell him to, uh, as a slave, okay? But here's what I want you to see. We live in a culture that believes the world is divided into good people and to bad people. And good people always do good things, and bad people always do bad things, and that's totally opposite from the Bible. The Bible from one culture cover to the other, it's all the gospel. And the Bible from beginning to end says there is one good person, right? Thank you. And someone said Jesus. In the whole Bible, only one good person, his name is Jesus. Everybody else is flawed. And as flawed people, all of us, we do the right thing sometimes, right? And then we do the wrong thing for sometimes, right? Really, the line between good and evil is not out there somewhere. It runs through all of us, right? Take Reuben. Reuben's the firstborn son. He was sticking up for his little brother. That's exactly what he should have been done. He saved his life. But know what Reuben was doing two chapters earlier? Chapter 35, verse 21. It came about when Israel was dwelling in that land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. Two chapters earlier, the same man's doing what? He's sleeping with his stepmom, and Israel heard of it. Isn't that people? How often do you hear someone say, how could that person ever do that? What do we read in the Bible? We read about a man one moment. One moment he's defending his little brother. The next moment he's sleeping with his stepmom. And then what about Judah? What about Judah? We have Judah here speaking up for his little brother. Some of you know 
The rest of you will find out. You know what he's doing in the next chapter? He's sleeping with his daughter-in-law, who he thinks is a harlot. Listen, every one of us is capable of incredibly terrible decisions. There is only one good person. His name is Jesus, and every one of us needs him, especially me. Then some Midianite traders passed by so that they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit and they sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. So they sold their brother as a slave. The price for a male slave in those days was 20 shekels of silver and they sold their brother as a slave. Certainly one of the darkest spots in American history. One of our worst things has been slavery, right? But it's important for you to know that America practiced slavery, but America did not invent slavery. Slavery has been a part of every culture from the beginning of time, and we see that here, that brothers sold their own brother as a slave. Now Reuben returned to the pit. So he thought he'd still be there, and behold, Joseph was not in the pit, and he tore his garments. He returned to his brothers and said, the boy is not there. As for me, where am I to go? He was the firstborn son. When they went back to see their dad, do you know who the dad was going to hold responsible? It was going to be Reuben because he was the firstborn. The boy is not there for me. Where am I to go? So they took Joseph's tunic. Now listen to what they did. I'm going to ask you a question just a minute, so pay close attention. So they took Joseph's tunic and slaughtered a male goat and dipped the tunic in the blood, and they sent the very colored tunic and brought it to their father and said, We found this. Please examine it to see whether it is your son's tunic or not. Uh, is this your son's tunic? Then he examined it and said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Here's the question, did the brothers lie to their father, did they? I heard some yeses, but did they lie to their father? No. One of the reasons you need to know the Ten Commandments, and you know it would take you five minutes to learn them, it really would. But the Ninth Commandment is not, you shall not lie. The Ninth Commandment is, you shall not bear false witness. They didn't lie. What they did was they took an animal, they killed it, they covered their brother's coat in blood, they brought it to their father, they said, is this Joseph's? He said, yes. They let their father come to the wrong conclusion. Listen, the ninth commandment is much, much broader than lying. It's you're not to bear false witness, and they definitely violated the ninth commandment, even though they didn't tell a lie. And that's why if you go to court and, and you're, you take the oath, the oath is, do you swear to tell the truth, what, the whole truth and nothing but the truth? So they didn't tell the whole truth, did they? Um, do you know the Ten Commandments? It's amazing if you know the Ten Commandments, what an amazing moral guide that they are. They don't save us, that's for sure. Um, Notice how it goes on. So Jacob tore his clothes and put on uh, sackcloth on his loins and returned uh, and mourned for his son many days. 
Then all the sons and his daughters arose to comfort him. <laughs> they tried to comfort him without what? Bothering to tell him the, the truth, right? Then all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my days. So his father wept for him. His favorite wife, Rachel, had died, and now Joseph had died, and he wept and he wept. Every parent I know who has lost a child mourns and grieves the loss of that child every single day. Do you realize it would be 22 years? It would be 22 years before Jacob saw Joseph again alive and his brothers watched their dad grieve for 22 years and never told him the truth. Um, his father wept. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. So how does chapter 37 end? Let, let's go back to our map. See, Jotham was sold as a slave up in Dothan, and, and they took him down. So as the story ends, Joseph is now in Egypt as a slave. We'll pick up the story in a few weeks. Okay, he's in there. Jacob and, and his brothers are in Hebron, and, and Jacob has a broken heart. The son, his favorite son, has died, he thinks. And the brothers are maintaining a conspiracy to break the heart of their father for 22 years. Oh, listen. Obsessive comparison disorder had undone this family and can undo ours, too, because we see Joseph... And, and he's undone by pride, right? And, and his brothers, his brothers are undone by envy and coveting. So we've looked at uh, how uh, obsessive comparison disorder can undo a family. Let's look at Jesus now. Let's look at Jesus now and, and, and see how only Jesus can free us from obsessive comparison disorder. You see, Jesus can free us, and that really is the gospel. Jesus can free us from all of our sins, including obsessive Comparison disorder. That's the good news of the, the, the Bible. The, the, the bad news of the gospel is that we have a problem called sin. And I want you to, to see Romans 3, 23 with me. Will you read this with me? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. How many have sinned? And you see, some of us, we've sinned like his brothers, haven't we? We've sinned with envy and coveting. And some in this room... We not only coveted, we actually what? We stole what we wanted. I, I, I'm guilty. You ever stolen anything? That's some of us, right? And then others of us, our sin, right, is, is what? We're filled with pride and self-righteousness. We think we're not bad like those people, right? Oh, but you know what's true with all of us? Listen, the Bible says for all of sin. Some like Joseph, some like his brothers, but we've all sinned against God over and over again, and because of that, we are in big trouble. Matter of fact, Romans 6, 23 says, for the wages of sin is death. You know, so often we're worried about what others have and what we have, but know what we really deserve? If God gave us what we really deserve for what we've done, what we really deserve is death. What we really deserve is hell. That's what we've earned through the life that we've lived, sinning against God over and over again. But the good news of the gospel 
is there's a Savior named Jesus. The good news of the gospel is we can get what we don't deserve rather than what we do deserve. Talk about something that frees us from obsessive comparison disorder. It's to know that in Jesus we can get what we don't deserve, something so much better. Notice this, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That Jesus is God who became a man. And listen, he's the only person who ever lived who, who didn't get undone by obsessive com, uh, com, 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 comparison disorder, right? He, he wasn't undone by envy or by pride. He lived a perfect life for us, and then he went to the cross. And on the cross, our envy and our coveting and our stealing and our jealousy and our pride we're all placed on Jesus, and he died in our place once and for all, and then he, and then he rose. Um, and know what Jesus is doing? He's pursuing people. And he says, listen, I want to free you. I want to free you from obsessive comparison disorder. I want to free you from your sins. Matter of fact, listen to what Jesus said. Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. Jesus says, I want to move into you and give you eternal life. I want to wash all of your sins away, and I want to give you the Holy Spirit so that you really can be free from obsessive comparison disorder. And then we can do life together, and then we can do eternity together. And nobody requires of us that we receive him as our Savior and Lord. And, and, and if you've never done that, won't you? I mean, there was a day in my life, it's not real hard, there was a day in my life where I said to Jesus, Jesus, I've sinned against you and I'm sorry, won't you? And then I said, Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross for my sins and rose, won't you? And then I received Jesus, I want you to be my savior. Come in and forgive me. Oh, and he did, it's so good to be forgiven. And I want you to give me eternal life, and he did. And, and I want you to be Lord of my life, help me be who you want me to be. Won't you do that? You can do that right where you are if you like, or come up, I'd be glad to help you. Oh, and when Jesus moves in, he begins to free us from obsessive comparison disorder. The first step in being set free is that we receive Jesus as our Savior and Lord. And the second step, the second step is that we abide in him. We abide in him. The action step for this week is I want you to abide in Christ. Now, I, the best definition I ever heard of the word abide is means to be with a friend who loves you and stay there to be with a friend who loves you and stay there. Now, when we become a Christian, we hear Jesus knocking, and we say, come and live in me, right? And so once he comes in, the, the way we're freed is we learn to be with a friend who loves us and to stay there. In Revelation 3.20, Jesus says when we receive him, I will come into him, right, and will dine with him and he with me. In the Bible, in the Bible, what is dining all about? It's about what? fellowship. It's about friendship. It's about doing life together, isn't it? So Jesus says, I want to move in and, and let's do life together. So one of the skills of abiding in Christ is learning to gaze at Jesus and glance at our circumstances, to gaze at Jesus and glance at our circumstance. If we spend more time online gazing at other people than at Jesus, why are we surprised that our hearts are so sick with obsessive comparison disorder, right? So if we want to be free, 
we need to learn to gaze at Jesus and, and not at others. So I want to go, I want to go all celebrate recovery on you this morning. Our church has an amazing ministry called Celebrate Recovery that helps people overcome hurts and habits and hang-ups. So here I go. Good morning. My name is Smiley, and I'm a grateful believer in Jesus Christ. And I really struggle with obsessive comparison disorder. Do you? So every Sunday morning, you know where you'll find me? You'll find me in worship, not because I'm good, but because my heart is so twisted that I need to gaze at Jesus that he might free me from obsessive comparison disorder. And you know where you'll find me every Sunday evening? You'll find me in my small group with God's word open and we're gazing at Jesus together. I don't do that because I'm good. I do that because I'm not. It's because my heart is so messed up. I need to gaze at Jesus if I want him to set me free. You know where you'll find me every morning when I get up? I'm spending time with Jesus, not because I'm good, but it's because I struggle with obsessive comparison disorder, and I need him to set me free. Don't you? And you know what happens to me a hundred times every day? I find that I'm gazing at others, and I'm struggling with obsessive comparison disorder. And so the Bible calls us what to repent, right? It means to change our mind. It's to take my eyes off of others and focus them on Jesus, right? Doesn't the Bible call us to do that? Listen to Colossians 3. Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, are you a Christian? Have you been raised from the dead? Keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Gaze at Jesus where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Gaze at him. Gaze at him. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. You want Jesus to set you free from obsessive comparison disorder? Set your mind. Set your eyes on Jesus, not on what everybody else is doing. How about Hebrews 12, starting in verse 1? Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance, and the sin which so easily entangles. It's, it's so easy to be entangled, isn't it? With envy and pride, with obsessive comparison disorder. How do we get free? And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. It's what we do when we worship. It's what we do when we go to small groups. It's what we do when we get up and spend time with Jesus. It's what we do when we repent. We fix our eyes back on Jesus rather than others. The author and perfecter of faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Again, want to be free? For consider him. Gaze at Jesus. Think about Jesus. Make much of Jesus. Talk about Jesus. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Know what happens when we start to gaze at Jesus? we begin to see ourselves differently. We begin to see ourselves differently. When I see Jesus, I see myself much more clearly. And there's two things I know about me. First of all, I am a great sinner. And secondly, I have a great Savior. When I look at Jesus, I realize two things about me. I am a sinner and I'm loved at the same time. Isn't that what the Bible says? It is a trustworthy statement. 
deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. You ever, you ever wonder who we compare ourselves to? Let, let, me, let me go back to my picture of the two fishbowls. Let's think for a moment morally. Morally, which bowl do we put ourselves in? Immorally, we put ourselves in the big bowl, don't we? And we think we're better than the people behind us, right? I'm really glad I'm not bad like those people, right? Isn't that what we do morally? I'm not as bad as those people. But what do we do materially? What do we do maybe relationally? Then we find ourselves thinking we're in the small bowl, and, and we look at those people, we think that they have more than we do, right? But when we look at Jesus... He frees us from both pride and envy. How can I have any pride when I look at Jesus? I'm a sinner. <laughs> I'm the chief sinner. He saved me by grace. Listen, the only thing I've contributed to my salvation is sin, right? He's the one who's, who saved me, right? And, and listen, how can I be envious of others when I have Jesus Listen to Hebrews 13, verse 5. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Listen, make sure your character is free from always envying and coveting what others have. Why? Being content with what you have. Well, what do I have? For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Um, you know what I have? I have Jesus, do you? Do you know he knows my name? <laughs> do you know that he has forgiven me of all my sins? What would you pay to be forgiven? He's forgiven us. Is that treasure to you? You know what he's promised me? I'll never desert you. You know how many people in my life were once my friends and they're not anymore? And you know how hard that is? When people get to know me, they leave. But there is one person who says, I know everything about you. I will never discover anything about you that I don't know, and I'm never leaving. Isn't that in our heart of hearts what we all long for? Isn't it Jesus, that he forgives us, that he's never leaving? He's with us every step of the way in this crazy world. And listen, we get to spend eternity with him too. Listen, what really frees us from worrying so much about what other people have is when we already have what we always wanted. Jesus, right? So listen, when we gaze at Jesus, we see ourselves differently. When we gaze at Jesus, we see others differently. When we gaze at Jesus, we see everyone around us. They're just like us. They are sinners who need a Savior. Because so many of us, we're comparing our worst moments with people's best moments online. And we're thinking, my life stinks. That's their best moment. They're not showing you their worst moments. They're showing you their best moments. And you're comparing your worst moments with their best. Quiet. Ooh, couldn't even get that out. Quit. Gaze at Jesus. If you gaze at Jesus in the Word, you'll see the Bible shows people's worst moments and their best moments, right? Compare your lives to them, right? <laughs> Look at Reuben. Yes, he got it right. He stood up for his younger brother. Way to go. But look at Reuben. He slept with his stepmother. 
He's a sinner who needs a Savior just like you. Look at Judah. Yes, he got it right to stand up for his little brother, but he slept with his daughter-in-law. He's flawed just like you. There was a pop psychology book a few years ago, many years ago, called I'm Okay, You're Okay. It's a double lie. It's a double, you're not okay, you're sick. But listen, everybody else is too. The Christian version is so much better. The Christian version is I'm a mess and you're a mess. That is one of the most freeing things you'll ever realize. Listen, from a distance, they look like they have it all together. They don't. No one does. There's only one good person. His name is Jesus. And the rest of us, we're all flawed. And we all need him. And listen, sometimes we have good moments and sometimes we have bad moments, right? Listen, when we gaze at Jesus, we'll see ourselves differently. We'll see other people differently. We'll have so many opportunities for gospel conversations. So many Christians tell me, smiling, I don't have anything in common with lost people. You know what I think? Listen, you know what we have in common? We are all what? Sinners, right? And you know what we have in common? We both need who? Jesus. See how much we have in common? You know what else I think we all have in common? I think everybody we meet struggles like we do with obsessive compulsion disorder, with obsessive comparison disorder. I think we all do. And so this week, when you're with someone, and as you listen to them, you hear envy or coveting, or perhaps pride, why don't you say to them, me too? Listen, I struggle with OCD. What? I too struggle with obsessive comparison disorder. They'll say, really? You're a Christian. Exactly. I realize how much I need Jesus. Listen, he's helping me. He could help you. Or how about this week, if nobody does that, why don't this week, when you're with someone that you'd like to see come to faith in Christ, why don't you say to them, could I confess something to you? I really struggle with obsessive comparison disorder. Do you ever struggle with that? And you know what we heard in church on Sunday? We learned about someone who can free us. Would you like to know who that is? His name is Jesus. And I'm learning how to look to him to set me free. And I believe the one who's setting me free can set you free too. Do you think you'll meet anyone this week who would love to meet someone who could free them from obsessive comparison disorder? Won't you point them to Jesus? Let's pray. Jesus, we're so thankful you came to seek and save sinners like us. Thank you for dying in our place and rising and and offering to set us free. Listen, if you're here today and you've never received Jesus as your Savior and Lord, won't you? He's here. Won't you just say, Jesus, I've sinned against you and I'm sorry. And I believe you died on the cross for my sins and rose. And I want you to come in and forgive me and and give me eternal life. I want you to be Lord of my life. Help me be the person you want me to be. If you've done that for the first time, won't you mark it on your card? We'd love to celebrate with you. And Jesus, I pray for those of us who have invited you in that we would dine with you, that we would be with a friend who loves us and stay there, that we would gaze at you, 
that when Sunday comes, we'd gaze at you in small group, and each morning we get up and gaze at you because we need you to set us free. And Lord, I pray as we look at you, we see ourselves differently, and you free us from envy and pride. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to see others, that there are people just like us who desperately need you. And Lord, I pray this week that each of us would have a chance to share with others how you, Jesus, are the one that we all need to set us free. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.